I'm going to read the whole book before we talk about it. And so I think it's, it's only like 115 verses long. And so it's just, just like the equivalent of three chapters. We used to do that in Ezekiel a year ago. So, so let me, uh, let me uh, pray, and then we'll get started uh, this evening. So, Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for 66 inspired books. That is sufficient for the man of God to be adequate and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thank you that is sufficient for teaching, sufficient for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. And so we ask, Lord, for that profit to be given to us tonight, that this would be a profitable book for us, that we would understand what the gift of marriage and the gift of love and sexual love, even in marriage, is like and what you intend for it. And we thank you also that it's true. Jesus said that it is the scriptures that speak of me. And so we don't just examine the scriptures so that we would get life directly from them. We examine the scriptures so that we would see Jesus and from Jesus receive life. So bless us tonight to see Christ in this book, because this is another book that speaks of him. And so grant us also, Lord, tonight to receive that benefit, even more so than the other. And so we, de we dedicate this night to you as a group. We want to see Christ. We want to gain that profit. And so lead us tonight in this holy book, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Reading of Scripture is commanded in 1 Timothy, the public reading of Scripture. So here we go. A whole book, Song of Songs. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And the woman speaks, I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy. For the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretakers of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, O oh you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flock, the flocks of your companion? And the man says, if you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. We will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night 
between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters cypresses. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the young ladies. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved one among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. Let his right hand be un left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the hinds of the field, that you not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come along. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies, until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bether. On my bed, night after night, I sought him, whom my soul loves, the woman having a dream. I must arise, I sought him, but did not find him. I must arise now and go throughout the city, in the streets and in the squares. I must seek him, whom my soul loves. I sought him, but did not find him. The watchmen who make the rounds of the city found me, and I said, have you, seen my, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse love or awaken, arouse or awaken love until it pleases. 
What is this coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powders of the merchant. Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. Sixty mighty men around it, of all of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple fabric, its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. Now the man speaks. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones, on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh, and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no blemish in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinur and Hermon, from the dens of lions, and from the, mountain, the mountains of leopards. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked up is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked. A spring sealed up. Your shoots are like an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna and nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all the finest spices. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water and streams flowing from Lebanon. She, she says, Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. And he says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. 
I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, O friends. Drink and be drunk, O lovers. I was asleep, she says, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my beloved one, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. I have taken off my dress, how can I put it on again? I have washed my feet, how can I dirty them again? My beloved extends his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. I rose to open to my beloved, and his hands... My hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen on the wall took away my shawl from me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. Well, what kind of beloved is your beloved, O most beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved, that thus, in this way, you adjure us? My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves, beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with burl. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness, and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that, you, that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of balsam to pasture his flock in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He who pastures his flock among the lilies. And then he says, You are as beautiful as Tirzah, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me for they have confused me. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes which have come up from their watching, all of which bear twins. Not one of them has lost her young. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The maiden saw her and called her blessed. 
the queens and the concubines also, and they praised her, saying, Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. Come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. Why should you gaze at the Shulamite as at the dance of the two com companies? How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like the tower of ivory. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel. And the flowing locks of your heads are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. I am my beloved's. His desire is for me. Come, my beloved. Let us go into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. And let us see whether the vine has budded, its blossoms have opened, whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There, I will give you my love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance, and over our door are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. She says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? <coughs> Beneath the apple tree I awakened you, there your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave you birth. Put me, she says, like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as severe as the grave, as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. 
We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. My own vineyard is at my disposal. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who take care of its fruit. O oh, you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. Hurry, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. It's interesting, it really doesn't take that long even to read it. Not that long of a book. I think that's the very first time I've ever read that book in public. It's one of those books that people normally wouldn't read in public. But it's a public book. This is actually published. It was made public. You know, it's a song that he wrote, and it, it was published, and now it's been reproduced worldwide. And so, if this book finds us feeling awkward, finds us feeling weird, or tempts us in ways that are like inappropriate or different things, that's not due to the holiness of this book. It's due to our warped nature. This book is, as the law itself, Romans says, is holy and spiritual and good. And so, like the law stirs up the passions of the flesh, so a book like this, which is holy and beautiful and spiritual and good, can stir up the passions inside the heart of us in ways that are not appropriate. But it's not due to the problem of the book, it's due to us. Actually, calling that out was helpful for me. And just naming it and saying, you know what? I actually idolized sex. I made it an idol when I was young. Like, someday, oh, I'll get to do that. It made it larger than life. Like, because I was, like, pledged to, like, I'm not going to, you know, do it before I'm married. But I fantasized and lusted after it and all sorts of sin over it. And it idolized it. It became so big in my life when I was a young man, almost like somebody might idolize alcohol. Oh, when I get to turn 21, I wouldn't touch a drop and do it illegally, but oh, I can't wait for that birthday when I can really, you know, taste it. Well, what we're doing is we're taking something good that God made and we're making it bigger than life. We're making it holy, as if it's extraordinary in a category all by itself. Can you see what I'm saying? It's actually, it's, it's normal. It's beautiful, it's good, but it's normal. It is compared in this book to eating. <laughs> and of course, our culture idolizes food. We take pictures of it, we have channels dedicated, we make games about it. It's actually, some have said, like, food is the new taboo and sex is just normal now. 
where our grandparents, our grandma, would have had sex would have been taboo and, and food would have been normal. Just cook it in bacon grease and serve it up. Didn't give much thought to food. And so literature now has talked about it different. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about the oddity of somebody that would take food and like, you know, like have pictures of it and then stare at it or something. You know, it's like how weird that would be. It's normal like food. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says that there will be doctrines of demons someday, devilish teachings that will tell you to abstain from certain foods and to abstain from marriage. That's of the devil. Paul flat out says in 1 Timothy 4 that this was made to be enjoyed by believers. To be enjoyed by believers. Just like a good meal can be offered up in thanksgiving to God when we say thank you and we say grace at table. We make it, it says it's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Sanctified means set apart as holy. It's sanctified and offered back to God. In and of itself, it is not holy. It is just normal. Every one of us came into the world that way. There's eight billion of us out there. It's pretty normal. Okay? It's, but like a good meal, which is pretty normal too, we can take a clean thing and we can thank God for it and it can become an act of worship. And so the marriage act can be an act of worship within the covenant of marriage and something that we can say, thank you, God. That was a good meal. Thank you. And it's just part of life, like having breakfast. And not, it's good and beautiful, but not holy in itself. Do you follow what I'm saying? Okay, so, so this, what I want to do is almost desacralize it, take it out of like something like taboo, wouldn't talk about that, or idolize it, oh, someday. Just desacralize it and just make it normal. Just, it is. And then see it in its beauty and be able to offer it back to God in gratitude for what it really is, a gift, and then it becomes a true act of worship because we're worshiping him, not it. You see the difference? And so I think that if that attitude can become yours now as single, a lot of you are single, can attitude can become yours now, you will greatly appreciate it when you are married someday. It will, it will be a good gift and it will be in its right place. And for those of you who are married, I do believe Calvin is right. In the sense, in a metaphorical way, you can commit adultery with your wife. In that, if you idolize her as an object and not as a person, as if any person would do right now, because I'm just fascinated with object and I've detached it from the person involved, then it becomes lust and no longer love. And just like meals are lawful, but there's such a thing as gluttony. So sex within marriage is lawful, but there can be such a thing as sexual gluttony, where like people are indulging way too often in marriage, when really it's just part of life. And so they're just gorging themselves when really it's not 
There's a lot more to worship and ministry and service, love to neighbor, love to God. It's a part of life. You follow me? And so if you use the analogy of food, which this book does, it really does help set it in its proper place. And it can become a good gift, but I don't live for it. And so, okay. So, I want to just, this is a, a very, in a sense, unorganized Bible study in the middle of this, okay? There's like a ton of things I want to say about this book, and they're all over the place. Some of you are just going to have to be bold and raise your hand and interrupt me. And we're going to have a conversation. We allowed a lot of time. We have 55 minutes left, which is good. I got a lot of things I want to say about this book, but it also, if it stirs up a question, then it's like, then, you know, praise the Lord. We can answer it. So at this point, is there any questions? Okay, ready to get into it? Yes, Keegan. What's that? I said, I'm the entire message. Can you read it again? Read it only takes me 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll let you read it on your own, but yeah. Okay, all right. So, a few things. Number one, when I desacralized it, it was like, then I noticed the images, and the images seemed funny to us. You know, like, and, they, and we talk about, like, you know, like, you know, yeah, like, how good did that go over with your, you know, girlfriend? It's like, yeah, your hair is like a flock of goats. You know, it's like, you know, that's just... We're not in an agrarian society, right? You know, we're not typically out there with the animals every day. She's pastoring flocks, okay? So it's like, this is normal talk for them. But for us, it's like, well, this is cultural then. There's a lot of culture here, but this, just catch with me, catch with me. Her teeth are like washed female sheep coming out of the pool in which each has its twin and not one of them are missing. Get the image? Pearly white teeth. Not one missing tooth. Everyone's got its pair. Okay? That's part of what makes a, you know, a woman beautiful. She smiles at you. What if she smiles big and she's got three teeth missing? Okay? You know, so she's beautiful. She's got all her teeth. And he commends her for you got all your teeth. Right? That's good. Okay. When I was in Indiana, and we lived in a rural county, southern Indiana, there were only 8,000 people in the whole county, about the size of Hillsdale County. There's 40,000 in this county. So only a fifth of the people, one high school. So it's pretty sparse. We were surrounded by pastors, and my desk, my, my desk was faced this way, and the window was over here, and there were white Charlet cattle on that pasture land. And there was like a, a lake down, well, it was a big pond, and they had dike on this end because it was all just ridges and hollers down there, so you had to build a dike to get water. And I would watch the charlet move on the bank across the pond. One would move, one would move, one would move, one would move, one would move. And it had such a grace as they kind of like moved across that greenery that that i think for the first time in my life i caught a sense of what this song was about like there's a beauty to the movement of nature yeah katie so, um, that, I don't know if you 
That's a great question. Uh, everybody understand the question? So in other words, it's picturing a standard of beauty, like all the teeth are there, right, you know? And so, you know, and then it would be, what if you don't, what if you, what if you got dentures? You know, or, I mean, missing all my teeth or something, right? So, fair question, and a good question. Interestingly, um, it is, the answer to that question is found right away in the beginning of the book, because she has to defend that she is beautiful. She is, she is actually not, she knows, she's self-conscious, she knows that she lacks the beauty that her culture esteems. It's found in chapter 1, and so if you look in chapter 1, she says in verse 5, I am black but lovely, I am black but beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem. She's speaking to the ladies. Hey ladies, I'm black but I'm beautiful, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. So she pictures something that is dark and beautiful. She pictures something exotic far away, these tents of the Bedouins that were black and had a beauty to them, and then something indoors and nearby, the curtains of Solomon. Because in her culture, based on her description of the man, if you go to chapter um, 5, catch the image here, verse 14, his abdomen is carved ivory. His legs are pillars of alabaster. Alabaster is gypsum, okay, and it's white. And ivory is white. So, the man has been indoors and enjoys having white, white skin. And I'm, I'm told in the 1800s in America, like having white skin for a lady was like, that was the creme de la creme. You know, like you want to have white skin. You don't want to be tanned. You want to be darkened. You want to be just white, white, white. Okay, now our culture went away from that at some point. And then people now, like at least I know when I was growing up in, a, in high school, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it's like, I would see these ladies, and I'm colorblind, and I would think their color isn't quite right. You know, it's like, I don't know if they're orange, or what, they were under like these heat lamps, or like tanning lamps, and you know, and it was like, like they just, in the middle of Minnesota winter, wanted to show up dark, you know? And so like, so to your point, Katie, there's a fickleness to this, where it seems like it can go like, white, white, pearly white, and then dark, dark tan, and it can go back and forth. And so, this is, this is what I've concluded on this. She's arguing that there are different kinds of beauty. Yes, there's, there's the, the light, fair beauty. Good. But also there's the dark beauty. Good. I'm beautiful. Though, I've had to be out in the sun, right? Because her brothers forced her out into the sun and she was not able to take care of her own vineyard, she says, which means her own looks. So, think of the beauty of somebody that has labored on behalf of their family and not been able to, like, do the beauty queen stuff because I've had to work my fingers down and I don't have the nice nails that others have and different things, but I've had to work. There's a beauty there found in that. 
I do think there is such a thing as objective beauty in that Genesis describes that Rachel was beautiful in form and Leah was weak in eyes. There was something, something that was not up to what God had originally intended. Doesn't mean there's not no beauty, but I do believe there's an objectivity. If we lack teeth, that's a mar, and I think it's especially proven when we finally get old. I was there the week before my great-grandmother died at age 95. I, there is nobody that will convince me that she was beautiful. I mean, she was so emaciated and so pulled and so pale that she was already, as it were, one step into death. There's a lack of beauty. And the Bible says, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, it's fleeting. It goes away. And so, you have it when you're young, praise God for that, but it will go away in time. Okay? And so, it's just a fact. Doesn't mean it all goes away. Doesn't mean that it's like, but it does go away. So, for each of us, and whatever culture, whatever background, whatever standard, let us recognize there are oak trees and there are maple trees. Oak trees have a majestic beauty in their own right. Maple trees have an, object, an a, a majestic beauty in their right. And they're not the same beauty. You recognize it? An oak tree's not a maple and a maple's not an oak tree, but they're both beautiful. Yet, a sickly oak tree or a diseased maple tree will lack some of the beauty that God intended when it was created. And that's just being objective. That it's not as it was intended to be. Now, God's grace can shine and manifest itself in weakness. And all of us, I dare say, are already marred by this fallen world in some way. Like I said, I have colorblindness. That's a genetic defect. I've had that since I was born. So does my brother, because my grandmother was colorblind, which is odd for a female to be colorblind. But her mom was a carrier and her dad was colorblind and the female can get it then. And she was. And so that's a small defect, but it is a defect. It's not as God intended. I'm in a fallen world. And each of us, I dare say, there are some defects. One of my students talked about spinal bifida occulta. She has that, where her back is like backwards, you know, it's upside down. And so she gets pains over that. It's like, okay, that's how God ordained for her to be in a fallen world. Okay, are you, you recognize it? Katie, does that speak to what, what you asked about? Yeah, the fact that you live in a fallen world, I guess. Sure. It's just, I guess, I don't want to say it, but, uh, yeah, it's just Yep. It is. It's very, and, and it is. It's one that I think I've come to recognize there is both an objectivity to it and a subjectivity to it. You know, and, and the subjectivity is just like foods. Somebody likes Italian pasta meals and somebody likes Mexican meals. You know, it's like 
But then there's also an objectivity to it. Like, that was very bland Mexican. Like, there wasn't hardly a spice in it. It was cooked like it was German. You know, it's like, what was that, you know? You follow me? So that in that sense, there's an objectivity to it. Or it's spoiled. You know, it was a good meal eight days ago, but now it's gone, it's starting to go rotten. And so there's objectivity too. And I don't want to trick my mind into just being totally relative when it comes to these things. And it's an aesthetic thing, but I think guarding the options, maple trees, oak trees, Mexican meals, Italian meals, helps give the sense of which in this room, you're going to be attracted to a certain kind of beauty more than other kind of beauty. I just think that's a reality. And that's great. Praise the Lord for that. You know? And so may you find yours <laughs> if you're not married, you know? And if you are married, praise the Lord, you know? He gave, he gave you your gift. And so love the gift you have. Praise the Lord. Okay. Good. Now I want to go to another image. He's pictured as like a male deer, a stag, okay? Which has the ability to climb mountains. Sure-footedly climb mountains. She is pictured as being up in the mountains. I am so intrigued by the, by the intimidation factor that the woman has in this book. She's like with the mountains, she's up with the, with the mountains of leopards and lions and come down from Armana, you know, come down from the heights. Well, sure-footed man, you got to start climbing, old stag, and then start figuring out how to woo the woman out of the mountains. There is an interesting dynamic and a mystery. I don't think men are that mysterious. <laughs> I, I just don't think they're that mysterious. But I think there's a, mis a mystery to the woman, okay? And to, to win the woman, when she's won, she desires the man. Just like the second verse, oh, let him kiss me with the kisses of the lips, it's better than wine. <laughs> I want to get drunk. This book says to get drunk with sex in marriage is actually fulfilling a command, because it's in chapter 5, verse 1. Drink deeply and get drunk. It's in the Hebrew, it's translated in the Greek the same way, it's get drunk. Proverbs chapter 5 says it too. Be exhilarated always with her love means be drunk with her love, with her lovemaking. It is wrong to get drunk with wine. Strictly forbidden. Ephesians chapter 5. To get high on drugs, to get drunk with wine, strictly forbidden. But if there is genuine love in marriage, genuine love between a man and a wife, there will be a moment of passion where they have lost their mind. And God designed it that way. And that's helpful for a young couple to know. <coughs> God designed it that way. And so don't idolize it. It's just part of the good gifts. And so, but just recognize that's good and okay. Otherwise, all you Stoics out there, maybe a little bit of Aristotelian sprinkled on top or something, I don't know. Somewhere like your mind and your, your mind always has to control your passions and your passions better not get the best of you. I think this says let them get the best of you. In this moment, the mind goes out, you're pretty drunk, let the passion take over, enjoy the gift God gave, 
and then come back to reality and thank him. And so I think that's part of it. And that's helpful to recognize that it's a God-given design thing. Okay? So, okay. So, going back to the stag thing, I think there's an element in this with this that, that he has to learn how to woo her out of the mountains and to learn how to win the woman over. And any marriage counselor will talk about the amount of time it takes to win the woman, to woo her, to gain her affections, and to, you know, the, the affections, the tenderness, all that begins in the kitchen. It might begin two days earlier. I mean, it's just, it's a slow process, and it's a dance, and it involves every aspect of life, because usually when a woman's thinking, everything's connected to everything. It's holistic, typically. And so it's a large feel for the household, a large sense of the mood and the atmosphere. And boy, can a man mess it up quickly. One dumb comment. And out, I mean, it's just, you know, one bad reaction. And guys are good at the bad reactions. I just say, as a guy, I can do it. <laughs> and it's like, to win the woman over it's, it's a holistic, it takes an approach to love, an approach to marriage, that you better come at it with your whole soul. Give yourself over and love and lay down your life. And so, to demand it and to act like, I'm the man around here, it's, it's to demean her, to cheapen the gift, and to make it a physical act rather than a relational expression. Can we all agree this book has a lot of talk in it? There's a lot of relationships going on, a lot of communication going on. Sexual experience in marriage is a relational thing by God's design. It is meant to, as Larry Crabb in his book, The Marriage Builder, says it starts with spirit oneness. You both are believers. You have faith in God, and that gives you a security. You're not fearful, worried, and insecure with a sense of inferiority. It's like, I am who I am, and God made me the way I am, and I thank him for it. And so I feel secure. Then from that security of faith, you can reach out in love and have soul oneness, which is a friendship. That you can love each other as your closest neighbor, as Martin Luther said. You know, love your, why should you love your wife? Well, she's your closest neighbor. <laughs> to love your neighbor as yourself. Spirit oneness leads to soul oneness as faith leads to love. And then that leads to body oneness in marriage, where they're one's, one flesh. That is an, in and of itself is a truthful statement when the other onenesses are in place. She describes him at the end of chapter 5 as this is my friend and this is my lover. That's a good description of marriage. Friend and lover, together. What a unique relationship. You don't get a relationship like that in life. This is utterly unique. Friend and lover. And so, this is what marriage is intended to be. Friend and lover. And so, then in richness of that communication, then when the lover aspect comes out, and the body oneness comes out, and the expression of that closeness and tenderness comes out, 
it speaks truth then. Otherwise, it speaks a lie. It acts like we're close and we're not really close. One of the, one of the lies that, that uh, men often buy into is that sex will somehow bring a marriage closer. And it's like, it actually repulses um, to try and do, you know, to have that experience without the closeness, relational closeness. Because it's meant to be an expression of love. How can it be an expression of love if I'm just seeking my own interest in it? Merely seeking my own interest. Okay, are, you, are everybody, you tracking that? This is, this is a very good thing with spirit oneness, soul oneness, body oneness, expression of love. Okay. Did you notice when I read, this actually uses the word love? Chapter 8, verse 6 and 7 describes it as love is fiercer than the grave, than Sheol. If somebody were to give all his riches for love, it would be utterly despised. This is the Bible's book on marriage. There's 166 books. There's 66 books. This is the one book on marriage. And it's found in the practical corner of the Bible. The wisdom literature. Job talks about suffering. That's common to life. Psalms talks about worship. That should be common to life. Proverbs talks about family life, work, business, such. Everyday life. Ecclesiastes, the meaning of life. I can't get ahead and then I die. Which speaks of the need for resurrection. And this is the book on marriage, which is the heart of family. This is your book on marriage. What an intriguing book. Lots of talk in it, lots of communication. And in the heart of it is an expression of body oneness. That one verse I described is right smack in the middle of a great chiasm, they call it. The brothers are at the beginning of the book and the brothers are at the end of the book. There's a dream about the watchman here and a dream about the watchman here. And right at the heart of the book is the wedding and the wedding night and drink deeply and get drunk. The sexual expression in marriage is at the heart of this book. If you ask God, what is marriage? It's the sexual union of a man and a woman for life by covenant. The sexual part of marriage is inextricably, inextricably bound to what marriage is because one flesh is right there in Genesis chapter 2. Leaving father and mother, clinging to wife, and the two should become one flesh. It's, part, it's at the heart of marriage. And notice, there is not one mention of having children. This is not like okay, we're going to do it for procreation's sake, but don't enjoy it. Let's just be totally utilitarian about it. There's a lot of enjoyment. In fact, there's desire. My de I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. She loves to give him a good meal, in a sense. And so, come on in and let the, let the, let the kitchen and its aroma be spread abroad, all the spices in chapter 4. So come on in. It's like, there's desire, there's body, there's no mention of children. 
And God designed for love to lead to life, and I, I appreciate that, but this is, that's not in the essence of marriage according to this book. And so that leads to a lot of ethical, interesting thoughts and questions and rabbit trails and things. But my point tonight is, you get one book about marriage, and this is it. If a man and a woman want to get married in a platonic sense and just live in the same house and never kiss, there's something up. That's not the way Bible defined marriage. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis actually married a woman that way. Just because her son was in England, she couldn't stay in England unless she got married, and so she's, he said, okay, I'll do it as a favor. And they got married. And then they fell in love. <laughs> so it's interesting. They actually did, you know? And uh, some say that his biography, Surprised by Joy, had the double entendre meaning because her name was Joy. And uh, I don't think it does, but it is an interesting coincidence um, that he was actually surprised by what joy meant to, her, meant to him. The tragedy of it is, is that then she had cancer and died soon after, and he wrote that, that, that tragic book, A Grief Observed, as a result of losing her. He really loved this woman and discovered what marriage love is, is a kind of love. And so, so... Everybody understand what I... Oh, God in heaven, please help me with this. Some of you will enter marriage with a guilty conscience because you've already ruined the gift. She's described as a locked garden. She's a virgin. The end of the book says we have a... a, a it's brothers. We have a, a little sister... She's got no breasts, okay? She's just pre-puberty. But when she becomes a woman, will she be a wall? Like, stay out. You're not allowed in. Or will she be a door? She's a loose woman. She just lets men in. If she's a door, they say, we're going to barricade her up. We're not going to let men come to her. Okay, that's what they talk about in there. But they see the images. The images here are on virginity, of not spoiling that gift and abusing it outside of marriage. And, and letting. But if you lost it, you can't get it back. It's gone. And so some of you may enter marriage with a sense of shame, a sense of memories, and those memories often aren't pleasant, and they're, you know, they're, they're filled with, with hurt. And so... I want to offer a good word to you tonight for those of you like that. First of all, please know that this, what this book describes in its physicalness, is truly love. Whatever that was before was not love because love keeps God's commandments. That's not love. But this is love. You can have genuine love. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You were washed. You were cleansed. You were justified. You were made holy by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God when you came to Jesus. Even though beforehand you might have been a fornicator, an adulterer, even homosexual, you were that. You're no longer that. Your identity is not marked by your past. It's marked by Jesus. So go into marriage with a sense of purity, a sense now of receiving a good gift. And don't call it lust. 
learn the art of love now. It truly can be what this book describes. It truly can be love and expression of my love for you, not the fact I just want you or want this, which is idolatrizing. Does that make sense? And I pray God's blessing on you for that. Because I lived for one whole year as a miserable newlywed because I didn't confess my personal sin in this area. And it was miserable until I confessed and the burden lifted and just it's just like the sense of, of guilt-free came. God be praised for the way that he can just forgive and let free and so may the Lord do that for each of you in Christ. May the Lord do that. And so we forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. Can I give you a story, for example? Who's the author of this book? It's not a trick question. I mean, it's God, okay. But it's the human author. This is Solomon, right? Who's his mother? Bathsheba. Ah, Bathsheba. In the spring of the year, when the kings go out to battle, David stayed in Jerusalem. Heir number one. Idle time on his hands. And he was up on the roof of his palace, looking out, and he saw a woman bathing. David, what are you doing up at night before that screen? Scrolling around? You should be out doing your job, right? But he's idle and idle hands of the devil's play and he sees a woman and he inquires who is this woman he actually finds out this is one of his top 30 warriors wife and he takes her and he sleeps with her and then he wants to cover up his adultery because she sends word back i'm with child so he calls the warrior in and says please wash your feet an idiom for, go home and make love to your wife. He sleeps out with the servants of the palace. If the warriors are out there under the stars in the battlefield, how can I enjoy pleasure? What a dedicated soldier. So David gets him drunk. And he still doesn't go home. So David puts an order in his hand to have him go to the front of the battle where it's the hottest part and then have the soldiers retreat. So he's left there to die. But it looks like he died in battle. Oh, the, the sword takes one and then another. Oh. And so he marries her. And she has her child. And it looks like he got away with it. Until the prophet shows up. And if you know that story, he says, you're the man. David repents, seven days, fasts of food, praying for the life of the child, but the child dies. Now this is horrific. One's, one writer, C.H. Lewis, and I have great respect for this man, best preacher probably of the 1800s, said David was never as happy again in his life after his sin with Bathsheba. I don't believe that because of the end of 1 Chronicles when he sets out for the temple. I think he's really happy then. But it's still tragic. So here's the point. At that moment, 
he goes to his wife Bathsheba and she conceives and God sends the prophet to speak to David and says, call that child, I call that child Jedidiah, meaning beloved of the Lord. That's Solomon. In other words, he's going to be the next king. That is so encouraging me because that was gross sin, flagrant sin, in-your-face sinning. And yet Psalm 32 says, How blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose iniquity is covered. How blessed is the one to whom the Lord will not charge guilt. And the Lord who, to whom the Lord will not press charges. That's justification, which we saw in Romans. That's being guilt-free. Because Jesus died for my sins. Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 4. That's what David experienced after confessing his sin. He is guilt-free. And God's sign of him being guilt-free is that child is going to be the next king. That's given me such hope for second marriages that should have never lost the first marriage. But now they're on second or third. We have one of our old guys. Man, we love this old couple. They've been married 20, 26 or so years now or something like that. He's on his third marriage. Came to Christ in his 40s. He was a drunk for 25 years of his life. Look at God's grace, right? Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. That's the hope for you. If you have a past, that past can truly be gone and truly not be your identity. And God can actually look at you and say, Jedediah, I'm going to make use of you. Jedediah. Now there's a plot twist in this. I'm going to go one step further. Solomon's reign ends in idolatry and sends the whole, that whole line of David down the road to exile in Babylon until they're cursed. The Messiah comes from another line of David, from a son named Nathan. And Mary, it appears, is in that line. Who's the mother of Nathan? Same woman, Bathsheba. As if God didn't make his point the first time. He like added an accent and said, if this son messes up, I'll choose another son of the woman that you committed adultery with and bring the Messiah through there. So, you can present yourself fully to God as justified sinners through the grace of Jesus Christ and say, make my marriage beautiful. Make my life loving. Let, my, let our sexual experience in marriage be tight, warm, tender, beautiful, pleasing to you, encouraging, loving, and affectionate. And God can do it, no matter how bad you lost it before. Because God is a God of grace, and when sin abounds, grace superbounds. Amen? Okay? So, okay, questions so far? Thoughts? Yes, Rob. Uh, what do we make of Solomon having so many concubines? And, and uh, how do we trust the authority of the gospel points that way? Okay. So the question is Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So how can we trust this man on this topic? 
Well, if a man does inductive studies, uh, he certainly had a large sampling size. <laughs> totally being facetious with that one, okay? He's utterly stupid. Did you know, by the way, Deuteronomy 17 says, when I appoint a king, I want him to write his own copy of the law, his own personal copy of the Constitution of Israel, the Torah. And he shall not multiply horses and chariots, and he shall not multiply gold and silver, and he shall not multiply wives, have a harem. And first king says, Solomon multiplied horses and chariots, Solomon multiplied gold and silver, Solomon multiplied wives. He utterly broke the law of God, utterly broke the law of God, and those foreign women took his heart away. So, and yet, according to Ecclesiastes, his wisdom didn't leave him because it was especially given, God-given wisdom. So, the book apparently comes from that side of him, not the moral side of him, in crafting it and writing it. He wrote over a thousand songs according to the end of Ecclesiastes. This is the only one that was inspired. Otherwise, I guess it would have lasted. I'm just... It appears to be the only one inspired. It's best, it's definitely the best. Like the Holy of Holies is the most holy place, this is the Song of Songs. This is the songiest song. It's the best song he wrote. Now, as far as scholars arguing, they'll, they'll go through it. Is there, in interpreting it, is there like this young shepherd boy, and then there's this King Lear kind of guy, Solomon guy, and... And so it's kind of a love triangle thing, and there's like this nasty thing going on there. Is that what's going on? I don't think so. I, it seems to be pretty simple. Like it's actually, it's Solomon and a Shulamite. Um, but I guess it's like Ecclesiastes. Even when he did all that hedonistic activity, chapter 2 says his wisdom didn't leave him. And so God's able to inspire and give prophecy through wicked Caiaphas. Better for one man to die than the entire nation. Being high priest, he prophesied, even though he was utterly wicked. And so I think we're relying on the, the power of prophecy that carries a man, according to Second Peter, than the actual man and his own experience. So that would be my probably my best answer. Yeah. It's idiom, I think, yeah. I think it's idiom again. One of the things that's interesting about uh, covenants, and marriage is a covenant, it actually creates a bond that is as strong as blood. So, this man and that woman in the back, Gina Beckman, when I first met her, in college, we had, other than being both children of Noah, really didn't have much blood in common. You know, it's like, she's of a different family, I'm of a different family. But when we said, I do, I take you and you take me, and she could say, I am my beloved's and he is mine. That's what covenant language is. I will be God to you and you will be, right, people to me. I will be husband to you and you will be wife to me. And that moment, the two become one, and Jesus says they are no longer two. 
And so the bond that's created is as strong as the family bond. So that could be the origin of like my sister, my bride. You follow me? It's not incest, obviously, but it's like it could it it points to that that all when you think about it, marriage is so unique. It's both family now and friendship and lover. I don't know any relationship like this. What I have with her and what she has with me is utterly unique of our, our, our relationships. Utterly unique. It's so strange. It just is. And so I praise God for it. The mystery of just male and female will send you a lifetime trying to figure that one out. I mean, it just does. That takes counsel, practice, thought, prayer, mistakes. So. God be praised, but yeah, Will. Uh, I have a question about the kind of this recurring verse um, that I think it first talks about in uh, 2.7. I endure you, the daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, with those that be able to not stir up or awaken love that was for you. So why, why is that a plea? It seems very significant. Amen. Don't, okay, don't kindle this fire until it's the right time. And wow, does our culture need to hear that. This is a fire. There are, are two things that are emphasized in this book. The mouth and her breasts. Keep your hands and bodies off completely, okay? Don't go messing there because it kindles a desire when there's an appreciation of the person, it will utterly repulse and be disgusting if there's not. But if there's an appreciation of the person, I'm so looking forward to getting married. Don't touch. Stay away. Okay? Because it's like drinking wine. Let them kiss me with the kisses of the lips. It's better than wine. It'll lead to drunkenness. You'll lose your control. Don't do it. Don't awaken love until it pleases. And so... It just, he comes bounding like Tigger in chapter 2. He comes bounding down, the stag comes down and says, Hey! And she's like, turn away. Last, last part of the, turn away and go back to the mountains. Okay? It's like, don't awaken love until it pleases. But at the end of the book, oh, she wants to get away with him. Because they're married now. Now it's like, come on. You know, bound over to me. You know, let's go bounding off together. Okay? But you, there's a timing to this thing. And boy, does it wreck it if you kindle that fire too soon. And it becomes agonizing then to wait till marriage. Now, if you try to like put the fire out after kindling, it's like, oh, it's so hard. So don't do it. And many, I mean, some have not kissed till their wedding day. I know two couples at Countryside, that's true. They didn't kiss till their wedding day. And I know other couples, they've just slogged their way through engagement and it was just messy and hurtful and full of guilt and then confessing and it's like, okay? So don't kindle it. I just don't arouse it till it's time. It's actually in the form of an oath, but we don't take the name of God in this, in this, in this context. So we like call the gazelles and the hinds in the field and such. The one time the name of God shows up is the climax of the book in chapter 8. So let me, let me tell you a little bit about 
I got two things to tell you. I got to tell you about the form of the book. Then I need to tell you where Christ is in the book. Okay? Form of the book. I told you it's a chiasm. It goes from, they're like courting. Hey, Tigger, go back to the mountains. Don't awaken love till it pleases. Till chapter 3, look at, look at his marriage. And then chapter 4, wedding night. And it's and his like, my heart is beating faster. And your eyes are really, really powerful. Okay? And it's like, they're drunk. Okay. Then afterwards, chapter 5 opens up. And they don't jive. And boy, does this is like real life marriage. Okay? It's like I step on her feet. You know? I make an advance. She misunderstands. Then she tries to correct it. Now I'm gone. And they're just not jiving. And there's like a fallout. In the, and she has to go look for him in the dream. And then she gets beat up. It's like, it's just not working. Gary Chapman says euphoria lasts about two years on average. Like, oh, we're just so in love. We're just like, you know, and you look at them and they're like glued to each other. They kind of walk around and they sit really close to each other like, all lovey-dovey. And you're like, and you kind of almost want to turn away. Actually, later in the book, they go, come back, Shulamite, come back. We want to gaze at you. And it's like the book goes, uh-uh, you can't gaze now. Okay. And it veils it in beautiful language, okay? This is not pornography. There's no private parts in this, like the genital stuff. There's none of that. That's not in the book. Some argue it is. After looking at it carefully in different commentaries, I don't believe it's in the book. This is not pornographic, okay? So it's like, uh-uh. So, what do you do now? Those of you who have done premarital counseling with Gene and I, you know we emphasize this. It's going to come. You're going to wake up one day and we're like, we're not clicking. <laughs> and I love the fact that this book recognizes it. Okay, great. You were in love. You got married. Woo! Not clicking. Now what do you do? Now comes the work. Now comes the pursuing. Now comes the reminding. And they go back and rehearse over what they love about each other. She about him. Him about her. And now it goes deeper and the description is more intimate and the book gets more veiled, and now they're more, they're more close to each other. The book ends closer than where they were on their wedding day. So that the book's climax is not like its form, which would seem to say, that's the whole point of the book, get married. No! The whole point of the book is, once you're married, work through the love to the point where now your love is as strong as death. The jealousy is there so strong, it's like, I would be utterly insulted if you offered money. Like, this is priceless. This isn't about economics. and It's no waters can quench it, right? No Alzheimer's can destroy my love for this woman or this woman's love for me, right? Nothing can destroy it because it's so tight. That's the climax of the book. She says to the man, put me as a seal on your arm and put me as a seal on your heart. Think about the combination. Be proud of me. Wear me on, my, on your sleeve. Be proud of me. But then wear me in your heart too. In the place I only get to see, I know you're, I'm special to you right there. And boy, the security that woman feels. She knows this man has said, that woman is mine, and he wears her and, and says, I'm a, and like, I'm proud of her, she's mine, and in his heart he cherishes her. 
Boy, that's strong. You get that kind of a marriage, that kind of a love, that's strong. That's where the book drives to. That's where you want to get to. You follow me? And, it, and you got to work through the, the rough parts to get there. So it's a powerful message in this book. Okay. Second question. Second thing. And by the way, please, 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 my wife and I, man, I've heard my wife now say so many times, it's like, and it's true, Pastor Lily will say it so many. He's like, he's, he is a trained counselor, master's in clinical psychology. He's 70 years old. He's done like 40 years of counseling. And typically he says, people come to me for marriage counseling when it's too late. Like they should have come way earlier. It's like counseling should be a part of our life, right? With many counselors, there's safety. And so learning how to do the marriage thing. We just had a couple that we had that had been married a while back that did several sessions with us this summer. I I take my hat off to that that couple. They said, you know what? We're just we're just not clicking. So we did several sessions. They are into marriage a good ways. And so it's like, good. To get to that, work through that, you're gonna need probably gonna need counsel. Okay, where's Jesus in this book? One intriguing fact. How much we make of it? I've been cautioned by one Hebrew scholar. Bob, be very careful. But it's still an interesting coincidence. Your love means your lovemaking is better than wine. In the Hebrew, it's dod. Your dod is better than wine. And the letters for dod are the daleth, the vav, and the daleth, which is the same letters for David. And it doesn't seem to be an accident. Now, the Hebrew scholar says, well, maybe David was named after this word for the passionate love that's in marriage. Possibly. Obviously, we know that marriage, according to Paul, is intended to be a picture of Christ and his church. Amen? Mm -hmm. Follow me on that? But what we need to be careful is not to fall into the pit of Bernard of Clairvaux and act like my soul is the wife of Jesus or something. Like I heard one guy, I've not read it, but I heard his... It made one of my, our fellow pastors very uncomfortable to read Bernard's take on Song of Songs. Like, this is really weird feeling. Okay? Your individual soul is not the wife of Jesus. The church is the wife of Jesus. In a sense, we are kind of like the attendants, like the, the bridesmaids, as it were, that get to rejoice over the wife. If you look at the end of Revelation, it's the New Jerusalem that's the bride of the Lamb. And the New Jerusalem then is inhabited by us, who are believers, okay? So we get to rejoice that the group, that the church, that the city gets married to Jesus. And so it is clothed, the new Jerusalem is clothed with the deeds of the righteous and the holy ones cleansed by the blood of Christ. Our actions make that city beautiful. And so we can beautify the bride. We're the bridal attendant. As the bride gets ready, to marry Christ, we beautify her by our acts. So if you start thinking it more like that, like I'm looking forward to this wedding so much, when Jesus finally gets his bride, 
And so his bride is the church, and I'm a part of the church. His bride is the city, and I'm a citizen of that city. And so it's like, I get to be a part of making that bride beautiful. Now, if you think of it like that, it kind of changes it a little bit. So it's not so individualistic, okay? And so that's, I think that's one way to look at it and, and, and broaden it out. I gotta check my notes. I know I got one other thing I wanted to add, two other things I wanted to add to this. If that is so, then what I described earlier of the climax of the book has a scope of church history to it in a sense of like Christ unites us to himself but this thing is going to culminate in a deeper and a greater union someday and so it's like we're moving in that direction to the flame of Jehovah and the flame of Yah the love that God alone kindles and gives to us and so that's where we're moving and so it gives a sense of like it may be a rocky road to get there between the church and Jesus the believers and Jesus but he's looking forward to the day when he can present his church to himself in all her beauty without spot or wrinkle or any such thing Ephesians chapter 5 when I read this commentary two years ago and I read it in part for my own sake in our marriage and also then I preached I did a, a wedding that summer um, for Spencer Rothfuss and, and Riley. And so I read this book on Song of Songs in light of that. When I got to the end of this book, I had an interesting sense. The book was not pornographic. It wasn't like, you know, giving the, the kind of dirty feels. It was like I had a sense of cleanliness, a sense of like, you know, my mind was clear. May the Lord be merciful to whatever is going on there. And so when I got done, there was actually a sense of the beauty of the marrying of Jesus Christ to his church. Actually, I wrote in the margin at the, at the end of this, like, I have a greater sense of the beauty of Christ marrying his church now. And the union being a beautiful thing. My takeaway was to take what she did at the beginning of the book, I am black but beautiful. What in her culture says was a bad thing. You got tanned and you got darker and that now makes you not as beautiful to us. And she argues and says, no, it's a beauty. And there's a beauty that's found in this. Look at the curtains, look at the tent. You find beauty there, don't you? It's found in this. It got me thinking, I can take any sin and any past in my life and I can turn it around and say, my past and my sinfulness gives an opportunity for Jesus' grace to shine brighter in my life. And so I am red, as it were, but I am beautiful. I'm guilty, but I am beautiful. I've marred and, and ruined my life, but look at now, the grace of God shines in my life. And so I am an opportunity for Christ to display his greatness and goodness and his majesty in me. So may the Lord do that for you. And uh, 
And if you want to talk about this for practical things, you want to talk about this for like how to apply it, please come and see me or see my wife. We'd love to be able to help you in this way. Obviously, if you seek for counseling, for premarital counseling, we're available. We'd love to talk about you know, this to help you. But please know, it's probably the majority, many of us in the room have sullied ourselves already with this. But I hope tonight you can come away and go, the past can be past, justified, cleansed, forgiven, and I can look forward to not only heaven and my life glorifying Christ, but even a marriage that can be truly and fully blessed of God. May the Lord do that for you. So I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the gift of this book. Thank you, O Lord, for those that have spent their lives studying it to help us understand what we can't on our own sometimes, Hebrew and different things. Thank you. Thank you for the imagery. Thank you for the beauty. Thank you for the veiled gentleness. Thank you for the dove. That they're, both their eyes are like doves. There's an equality in the expression of their eyes and no difference between the man and the woman. And there's an act and a mutual peacefulness and gentleness. Not predator, not aggressive, but a dove. Their eyes are like doves. Lord, may you grant our souls to be like doves. May you grant our marriages, if we're married, our future marriage to be pure and beautiful expressions of Christ and his church and a taste of your goodness that we wouldn't idolize this nor thrust it away as something disgusting and impure but that we would embrace it as a gift and sanctify it by the word of God and then experience your goodness and thank you for it. So Lord, please put your hand of blessing and in our culture where there's so much hurt we will proclaim the gospel if we experience this goodness of yours and can testify to it and invite others in to this grace. And so I pray, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, Merry Christmas. We will not be meeting next week. We will be meeting near the end of January, Lord willing. And we'll start a whole new book and launch off again. So.